We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Well, it's that time of the year where the uh, holiday shows are coming in fast and furious. And it's about time, considering uh, where we've been in the last couple of years uh, getting through a global pandemic. Steve Strongman is with us, Canadian blues guitarist, singer, songwriter, producer, Juno Award winner, Mel Brown Blues Award winner. And coming up this December 3rd, the Saturday, uh, Ancaster Memorial Arts Center, 357 Wilson Street East, the Steve Strong. Uh, band's 11th annual holiday show. His latest, uh, The Strongman Blues Remedy, Volume 1, is on Stony Plain Records. And Steve is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Nice to hear from you. Great to be here. Thank you. So uh, it was sometime this summer. I'm driving around cottage country somewhere, and I'm listening to a small radio station, and they're playing the, uh, I believe it's the Canadian Blues Society's one-hour show uh, of all Canadian blues artists, and they play the Strongman Blues Remedy, and it's like, there you are, and Harrison Kennedy uh, blasting through cottage country. It was great to hear. That is great to hear. Um, there's people out there, especially up in cottage country, they, uh, they love their blues, that's for sure. So uh, what's it been like for you uh, over the past two years? Uh, obviously, you, you know, you tour, you like to get out and about, not necessarily the case in the last little bit. So how have things been for you? Is it returning to normal for you now? It's starting to get back to normal. Um, it, it was pretty tough there for all of us, especially musicians. I mean, we all went through a really difficult thing there. So I did what many musicians do, which is spend all the time that I could in the recording studio, because obviously live performance is the cornerstone of what I do. And not being able to do that, I had to uh, you know, use the time wisely. So uh, that's when the Strong and Blues Remedy came out. And uh, I'm just really, really excited that we can get a chance to be uh, back together and playing live music again. And I'm doing it on Saturday night. All right. Before we get to the Christmas show, what does next year look like for you? Is it would it be like a full slate year for you? Are you back to what it was like before or is it still kind of wading into all this? No, it's it's still a little tough. Um, Part of that being a lot of the shows, a lot of the places that have the kind of show that I do they've had a backlog of two years of bookings. Hmm. So part of the difficulty is trying to get back into those rooms that, that you were scheduled to play because there's just so many people that are waiting. And then the other thing that's happening now, everyone, myself included, wants to get back out on the road. So there's tons and tons of people touring. So the combination of that has made it a little bit difficult. Uh, but I do have offers coming in for Western Canada for uh, summertime festivals and some other things. But it's not. I wouldn't say it's back to where it was before. It's going to take a little while. All right, so uh, holiday season and the 11th annual holiday show. Tell us about this. What's it like? Well, it's very exciting for me this time. I, this is the 11th year that I've done it, but the first year that I'm doing it at the Ancaster Memorial Arts Center, uh, which is just an absolutely gorgeous facility. And uh, I have very special guests with me. Over the pandemic, I did some writing with Harrison Kennedy. We've uh, worked together a lot in the past, and he's just a fantastic singer, a wonderful guy. So I'm really excited that he's one of my guests. And then the other guest I have is uh, Ron Sexsmith. And uh, Ron, I've been a, a fan of Ron's for a very, very long period of time. So I'm really happy that this will be the first time we get a chance to play together. 
And is it tough to get acts together around Christmas time? It used to be everybody was coming home, or if they are, uh, they could get together for things like this. Again, considering what you're going through in a post-pandemic world and then the holiday season, what's it like for this season for you? Well, I'm thrilled to say that sales for this have, have gone incredibly well uh, leading up to it. So that's just kind of showing me that people are excited. They want to get out. They want things to return to normal. They want to take in live music. Um, it has been difficult getting everybody uh, everybody together. But uh, luckily for me, there was a, a couple of date changes with this date. But this date works out perfect for the third on Saturday. And uh, it was able to. we're able to do it. So what can people hope to see? So three acts, uh, is this going to be it? Or is it are more going to be added to this? Is it three separate shows? Are you all playing together? How, how do you do this? Great question. This is how we're doing it. It's my band, myself, with Colin Lapsley playing bass and Dave King playing drums. And we're going to play, we're going to kick off the show, and then we're going to bring out um, special guest Harrison and and Ron to play with us. And then we'll likely do something all together as well. But uh, people have to be there to see it. All right, so uh, it's happening this Saturday and Castor Memorial Arts Center, 357 Wilson Street East. How do we get tickets for this? You can go on to memorialarts.ca or you could actually go to stevestrongman.com and click through the links there and uh, get them there. All right, so anything new or anything you want to talk about for the new year that's coming up that you're looking forward to? Well, I'm working on a bunch of stuff right now that uh, we're probably going to wait to announce in the new year, but uh, I'm always writing and working on new material and uh, just getting excited about getting back out on the road and people can always check in at stevestrongman.com and see what my touring schedule's like. And is there going to be a volume two of Strongman Blues Remedy since you've called the first one volume one? <laughs> well, I'm certainly hoping so. Uh, it was really, really well received and uh, people are liking it a lot. But because that's with Stony Plain, that's sort of up to them if they want to get me to do a volume two right now. And we'll have to see how it's going to fit into their uh, release schedule. All right, Steve Strongman, Steve Strongman's band, 11th annual holiday show this Saturday, December 3rd, Ancaster Memorial Arts Center, 357 Wilson Street East, uh, joined by Harrison Kenny, Ron Sexsmith as well. And uh, again, tickets are available if uh, you hit Steve Strongman's website. Steve, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Scott, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. It's amazing how our position on China has changed just in the last, uh, it seems, almost weeks or months. Uh, there's been lots of chatter about this over uh, time, whether it's the five eyes and Huawei investing in our 5G strategy, whether it was the two Michaels, this, that, or the other. Uh, uh, clearly, the, the climate has changed, and it's uh, China no longer the golden goose that it once was. And now Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy means changes for us and uh, for China. What does an Indo-Pacific strategy mean? How are our plans changing? Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute, and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. It's good to speak with you, Scott. So, Charles, we've heard the uh, heard this phrase being used a lot, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. In the last few weeks, it seems that things are changing. What is our Indo-Pacific strategy? Well, you know, I'd like to see it a bit stronger on China than it is. It looks like we're going to be doing essentially what we've been doing up to now with a bit of, you know, with 2.3 billion over five years uh, thrown in to try and, uh, and increase our capacity. But, you know, the core statement in this strategy is a bit mealy-mouthed saying that China is an increasingly disruptive global power. 
And, you know, what we really need to be saying and facing the facts is that China is a strategic competitor with us. And any idea, in my view, that that the strategy has that we can engage China on, say, climate change, global poverty initiatives, or putting the brakes on North Korea's, like, unbelievably dangerous uh, nuclear missiles program is, uh, while not appeasing China on things like the Uyghur genocide and human rights and security issues, is, as Mr. Xi characterized our prime minister in Bali, uh, very naive. So I'm not too convinced by the policy, and they haven't put anything in there about the foreign influence transparency, in other words, demanding that people in the policy process who are recipients of benefits from China um, should be forced to declare that publicly so we'd be aware of the conflict of interest. So, uh, I, you know, it's a start, but I don't think that there's enough there to suggest that our government is really um, understanding um, what we should be doing in concert with our allies to try and uh, and address ch- China's challenges to Canada domestically and and in terms of geostrategy throughout the world. It certainly seems that our government is talking more about it now, anyway. I think a lot of people are talking, and I think that's great, you know. But I think that there's still a significant fraction within government who think that the main thing in our relations with China should be promoting trade and investment and promoting Canadian prosperity. And I think some people feel that we're being pressured by the United States to undertake a revision of our Indo-Pacific strategy, you know, when... Secretary Blinken was in Ottawa last month, um, the government and the U.S. announced that they would be engaging in a strategic dialogue on Indo-Pacific policy, which suggests the U.S. wants to have a talking with us on this. But I think that they're, you know, leaving aside this idea that the U.S. might be dictating Canada's foreign policy approach to China, you know, that may be true, but my my main point would be that there are very good Canadian reasons why we don't want Chinese, you know, police and, and espionage agents in, in our country, and that we 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 don't want to have to deal with a China that that uses economic coercion to further its um, political agenda, you know, and, and that we need to crack down on on Chinese um, obtaining of dual use military technologies through our universities and research institutes. You know, the most recent Chinese uh, alleged agent having worked on battery technology out of Hydro-Quebec. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons why we should have a, a strong statement and let the Chinese government know exactly where Canada stands on these things. And I don't think we're quite there yet. But, you know, having a statement that's weak is better than no statement at all. And how we implement it will be, you know, how we can test how seriously Canada is going to be taking this. Boy, how times have changed, uh, Charles. Uh, Once, it wasn't that long ago, a couple of decades ago, China was the golden goose. Everybody wanted a piece of this. This was the future. Now it seems we're distancing ourselves, or or, or at least not becoming reliant on those supply chains. Yeah, we don't want to be reliant on the Chinese supply chains, and we certainly want to diversify our customers for our Canadian products, which in the case of China are primarily agricultural commodities and and minerals. But, you know, we should be doing that anyway, right? Like, I mean, obviously, the function of a government is to try and and promote the Canadian economy. And the more people we can sell to, the better. 
But, uh, you know, I think the government's a bit naive about the idea that we can continue to deal with China on, 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 on our terms. I think the Chinese are only going to deal with us on their terms, and they have no problem in, in engaging in economic uh, coercion or, you know, gross violations of the norms of diplomacy, like kidnapping innocent Canadians and holding them hostage, as we saw with Kobrick and Spavor, as a, as a way for them to further their overall uh, global agenda and, and you know, get China, Canada into line, including, you know, the outrageous election interference where apparently the Chinese... Uh, Chinese money was supporting 11 candidates in the 2019 election and put 13 staffers into MPs' offices. You know this kind of stuff. Like, you know, it should be in the policy that we're not that we're going to take action to stop this. That we're going to arrest some people that are acting as agents for a foreign power in our country, and if they've got diplomatic passports, ship them back to Beijing, preferably yesterday. Will we find out any more on the election interference? There was some chat about it last week, and now it sort of died down. Is this, I mean, obviously this is ongoing. Is this something that we will find out that we're looking into? Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, there's a parliamentary committee, the, the Commons Procedures and House Affairs Committee, that scheduled several hearings on this matter, bringing in, you know, relevant government people to, to question them on it. But how forthcoming is CSIS and the Prime Minister's Office and Foreign Affairs going to be on this? You know, we've seen more and more of these parliamentary committees basically being stonewalled by by our government and our civil service. And, you know, that's not good for democracy either. In other words, if our elected representatives want some answers to some very serious questions, they ought to be able to get them. And so far... You know, look at the Winnipeg Labs thing. We still don't know what went on there, or the or the uh, Cameron Ortiz uh, spy scandal with you know someone who was up high in the RCMP turns out to have been working for a foreign power. You know, Canadians deserve to know, and and uh, I, I'm distressed that our government seems to think that they can just uh, blow us off. You know. I mean, what are you th- working for? What are your thoughts on uh, the protests we're seeing going on in parts of China in regard to COVID lockdowns? Uh, is the tide turning against Xi? I think so. I mean, you know, that's pretty uh, pretty pointed stuff where they're calling for Mr. Xi to be uh, to be removed from office. You know, in the previous big demos like the 1989 Tiananmen Democracy Movement, all they were calling for was for the party to to enact democratic reforms. But these demos seem to be suggesting that people are just fed up with the whole communist system and and want something else that, I guess, you know, is closer to their aspirations as people to take charge of their own fate and be citizens and have free access to information and that kind of thing. And, oh, and not to be subject to, like, unbelievably strong surveillance with facial recognition cameras and you know, censored social media and so on. So it's hard to assess, you know, our journalists are not able to get very much access to what's going on because of government and COVID restrictions, but this looks serious. And, you know, there's no end to the Chinese COVID zero policy until they start to import mRNA vaccines. They can't seem to produce Hmm. those themselves. They're not showing any sign of that. So their policy of like locking people up uh, for well, in the case of the people in, in in Xinjiang, some of them were locked in their apartment for a hundred days. 
you know, and then when and then when they couldn't get out because the, their doors had been sealed shut to maintain the quarantine and the building went on fire, you know, mm. they died tragic deaths. Mm. I mean, of course, people are upset about a government that would be um, engaging in that kind of treatment of their citizens. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, talking about Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Good to speak with you. The CP Holiday Train is returning to Gage Park tomorrow after a three-year hiatus. Uh, this is pretty cool if you've ever seen this thing uh, wailing through towns. A uh, thousand-foot train rolling into the city, 14 brightly decorated rail cars raising money, food, and awareness for the local food banks in communities along uh, the CP network to talk more about all of this. Salem Woodrow is with us, Manager of Media Relations, Canadian Pacific Rail, and is with us now. Salem, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for asking. So tell us about this, and to someone who's never seen this, what it is and and what the history of this is. Well, the Canadian Pacific Holiday Train is a a food-bake fundraiser on rails. And we travel across Canada and the United States raising money, food, and awareness for food banks and, and really raising the profile of hunger and food security during a very crucial time of year for people and food banks. So we put on a free concert for the community and uh, to support the food bank. So basically, you guys roll into town with this incredibly uh, colorful, lit-up train. You stop, you start collecting food, and you have a concert. You have a party. Absolutely. It's a party with a purpose, as we like to say. So describe this train. What does it look like to someone who's never seen it? It is 14 rail cars decorated with hundreds of thousands of LED lights and holiday designs. We have a boxcar stage where our performers, Lindsay L. and Jojo Mason, will host their show from. So it's about a 30-minute concert, a free concert for the community with some fabulous Canadian performers who are just really ready to put on the show of folks' lives. The really fantastic thing about the Holiday Train program is that when folks come out to support the Holiday Train, they are directly helping their neighbours. And another fun fact is that our beautiful train of lights can be seen from the sky. It is so bright. <laughs> so what is the root of this train? Where does it start? When does it end? Where, where does it go and uh, through its travels? So there are about 168 stops on our tour. It takes about three weeks for us to bring our two trains. So we have uh, one train goes only in Canada. We call it the Canadian train. And we have another train which goes in the U.S. and Canada. It started, the program start, kicks off in the east in the Montreal area. And the Canadian train will wrap up after three weeks in the Vancouver area. And our U.S. train, which goes down into the U.S. Midwest and uh, comes back into Canada into Saskatchewan, will wrap up in mid-December as well. So who is on this train and these 14 cars? Do the bands or the people that are performing, do they stay actually stay on the train and travel? They do. They do. So we have our band and a few CP staff members who stay on board to bring this beautiful train of lights into communities across the country. Uh, so for the Hamilton show, we will have Lindsay L. and JoJo Mason. Uh, and uh, it really will be a great show. All right, so give us the details and the logistics of, of its Hamilton stop. So the Hamilton stop will be at Gage Park, uh, the western approach to, uh, so just at Gage Park there. The show will be at 
p.m. Uh, and the train is going to arrive about 7.45. So I do encourage folks to arrive early so that they can get, get a nice close-up view of the holiday train. We do know that we get a tremendous amount of support from the Hamilton community, and it is always one of the best shows for sure. And you're looking for people to bring non-perishable food, that sort of thing? Yes, please. We, The food bank will be accepting cash donations as well as food donations. So if folks are unable to bring a food item, you know, really every dollar counts because food banks have a lot of different partnerships with producers and grocers that allows them to stretch their dollar an extra $5 up to $10 sometimes. So cash is always a great option to donate. And a website we can go to to find out more details on the train. CPR.ca slash holiday train. All right, CP Holiday Train returning to Gage Park uh, tomorrow after a three-year hiatus and a show. Uh, Lindsay L. and JoJo Mason and uh, a beautiful-looking train. Don't forget to go and help the cause and contribute to the local food banks. Salem, thanks so much for the uh, time. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck with this. Thanks so much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, the word of the year. The word of the year, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, gaslighting. Behavior that is mind-manipulating, grossly misleading, and downright deceitful. Lookups for the word uh, increased 1,700% over the year of 2022. Another thing that was bizarre about this, there wasn't a single event or situation that drove the significant spike in curiosity for this word. Uh, The gaslighting was pervasive. It is a word that has risen so quickly in the English language, and especially in the last four years, that it actually became a surprise, said Merriam-Webster's editor-at-large. It is a a word looked up frequently every single day of the year. There were deep fakes in the dark web, deep fakes in the fake news, and there was a lot of trolling. Merriam-Webster's top definition for gaslighting is is the psychological manipulation of a person, usually over an extended period of time, that causes the victim to question the validity of their own thoughts, perception of reality, memories, or typically leads to confusion, loss of confidence, self-esteem, uncertainty of one's emotional or mental stability, and uh, dependency on the perpetrator. There you have it. That is gaslighting, and it's our word of the year, according to uh, Webster's. Let's bring in Steve Jordan's professor of psychology, University. University of Toronto. He is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I hope, you, yeah, hope you're well too, Scott. Thanks. So, so, Steve, what are your thoughts of this year's word? Are you surprised by this in any way? Well, um, no, uh, I'm not because, you know, even if we look at abuse uh, in relationships, we know during the pandemic, a lot of us have been very stressed. We've been in what, what psychologists call fight or flee mode. So there's been more sort of aggressive behavior in all sorts of situations, including within couples. Um, and that sort of uh, abusive behavior, you know, we think of physical abuse quite often, but when we think of psychological abuse, gaslighting is that sort of, of thing. Uh, and so I think a lot of people have been experiencing it directly uh, and have probably been wanting to learn more about you know what it is, how it works, and, and how to identify it when it's being done to them. How would you define it, Steve? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing. It's a sort of high level, but typically it happens in some relationship as, as a way for one person to, to retain a certain amount of power over another person. And they do it by making them have self-doubt. So it could be as simple as, 
um, saying things never happen. So, so imagine an abuser does something abusive. Uh, and when that person calls them on it later, they say that never happened. Um, you're just making that up. And, and so they make that person sort of question their sanity. They will sometimes suggest other people are also thinking this person isn't quite right. And so it's basically any any comment you make that makes a person feel doubt about their sanity quite often. And as, as an extreme, that's where it kind of goes, where where one member of a of a relationship can really make the other person believe that they're not seeing the world right and you need me to help you get through. Uh, and so it's a real power dynamic kind of way. Are you surprised that this is the word uh, or not, considering how divided we seem to be? We seem to be living in a world of extremes, either on the extreme this side or the extreme that side. Are you surprised by this? Yeah, you know, not a because of what was alluded to earlier that there that a lot more of us are feeling a little more aggressive towards one another. So that means we're more likely to gaslight somebody else too, uh, as sort of a self protection. I, I guess, approach. But also, you know, people have been living in very close quarters um, with each other. And, and I think that's been sort of frustrating people. And, and as you alluded to, there's so much fake stuff out there that, you know, often a lot of people tell us more regularly that they think we're not seeing reality. And, you know, we can take any issue like the anti-vaxxer issue and put people on either sides and either side will, will sound like they're gaslighting the other. Now, one side would probably say the facts are with them and the other side, you know, etc. But when you have two people saying, you're not even seeing the world right, you don't understand what's really going on. They are gaslighting you. They are minimizing your perspective and and suggesting that they know what's right and you don't. Uh, and so we've, we've all been experiencing that from multiple sides. Uh, this reminds me and how much of a contributor to this was the Donald Trump era. Uh, I'm going to keep telling everything is uh, telling everybody that everything is fake. So nobody really looks at me and realizes that I'm a fake. I'm going to tell everybody that they're cheating, uh, because that will cover up or displace the fact that I am cheating. H how much did he fuel all of this? Wow. He fueled a lot. I mean, he took a lot of these things, um, to a level of explicitness that most psychologists wouldn't think would work. Um, you know, most psychologists just saying things like a standard phrase of his is, well, everybody knows that. And, you know, that that's gaslighting to, to say something that's false. And then this suggests everybody knows that it's you that just doesn't sort of realize that. Uh, and so people used to thought, though, that you needed a certain subtlety to this or somebody would just see through it. And I think what Donald Trump has taught a lot of psychologists is, you know, even things like saying the same thing over and over again, we mm -hmm. knew that if somebody heard something over and over again, that they would start to believe it. But again, they thought you needed to do it with a certain subtlety so that they didn't see through it. Um, but he, he's shown us that uh, he's shown psychologists that subtlety is overrated uh, and that quite often you can do these things in a very open way. If you're about to be blamed of something, blame somebody else of that first. And then when they try to blame you, it's, oh, you're now you're just trying to get revenge for blaming me for what you did. Hmm. Um, he, he's just a classic at it. Yeah. Are we still falling for it or is the pendulum swinging back? Are we figuring it out? Uh, um. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. You know, I, I certainly hope so. And, and, and you feel you feel like there's a rejection. I mean, what gaslighting does is it just leaves people feeling insecure and emotional and uncomfortable. And we've all been feeling so horribly uncomfortable for so long that I think we all long to 
get away from this hyper emotional context. And so there are signs um, that, you know, if we think of Trump as, as the source of a lot of this, there are signs at least that maybe he is not um, got the same mojo that he might have had a few years ago. Um, but man, um, you almost hate to rule that dude out. <laughs> so I just I just don't know. But I'm hoping that we are moving towards a more civil, uh, respectable way to interact with each other and that we don't feel the need to gain some personal power by, you know, putting somebody else in, a, in an uncomfortable position. Gaslighting. It's not the most complimentary word, but it is Merriam-Webster's word of the year for 2022. Steve Jordan is a professor of psychology, University of Toronto, helping us understand it. Steve, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. For six weeks, it seemed uh, we talked about the Emergencies Act inquiry, and now it has shifted to its next phase, which is reviewing policy and determining if it was needed or if it was, sorry, whether it, it needs to change. Uh, the Public Order Emergency Commission is expected to hear from about 50 experts uh, and share their perspectives on the EA, including whether it needs updating or not, uh, focusing on freedoms, uh, public uh, protests, as well as limits to that, uh, as well, uh, exploring financial governance, uh, policing, and intelligence uh, moving forward. And what can we learn from all of this? Hopefully, to have a plan B in place. Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, and is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. So your your thoughts on the fallout of this, um, is it or did it accomplish what it, it was meant to do? Does it matter um, uh, one way or the other? How are Canadians viewing this now that it is over? Your thoughts on the fallout? It's hard to say how, it, how the results are going to be until we get them completely. But in terms of pointing fingers and shifting the blame, it, it's done a great job at doing that because every level of government uh, every level of civil service, we're very happy to say, oh, it wasn't my fault. It was the other person's fault. So if we were looking for the blame game, this uh, inquiry did a great job. Uh, does that jive with the Canadian public who just want to know if this happens again, if there is a plan B in place? Many thought that after uh, the killing of Corporal Nathan Cirillo that this might be updated in some way. It appears uh, we still may not have a plan if this happens again or some sort of other terrorist activity. Yeah, it's really hard to say because there's still a lot of unknown until we get the final verdict. But I, I think Canadians paid a lot more attention than I thought. I think most politicians thought that they were going to pay to this because at the end of the day, the decision that is made will make a great impact on Canada and Canadians, not only how they choose to protest, but also how our government makes decisions to intervene with those situations or terrorist attacks. So you think Canadians are paying or had paid attention to this? Yeah, I think just judging by the amount of times we've even chatted, I, I think this is something that Canadians are interested in because we've never seen it before. Uh, we've never seen this part of the act being enacted. And to be honest with you, it, it's quite interesting to see how government is made. And this inquiry really kind of let people in to see how the sausage is made and how government makes those decisions at the end of the day. Um, and many have said, and the CSIS director said, although it uh, did not reach the level, the threshold of national security threat, that it was certainly needed to clean up the mess afterwards. Many are now debating whether uh, we should reexamine and redefine uh, the Emergencies Act. Does that need to change, do you think? I think it's a fair conversation to have because um, an emergency looks different every time you have one. 
Uh, what was defined as an emergency in the early 2000s is very different than what's an emergency right now. There's different technologies that are available that and that people use and different ways that there are attacks on our institutions. So I, I think that's a conversation I think a lot of politicians and even Canadians would welcome. Is that a distraction, do you think? Uh, it is a distraction. Like, everything's a distraction uh, for the government because they have their agenda and anything that doesn't go to their satisfaction, they would consider a distraction. But there's also important conversations that need to be had that are not necessarily related to what the government wants to talk about or that the government plan to talk about. So I think this is something that I think Canadians would welcome, kind of diving a little bit deeper and clearly defining it, because when the Emergency Act is invoked, if it is invoked ever again, there needs to be a clear definition of why and, and, and what the emergency is. Uh, I had one columnist say to me that um, at the end of the day, it needed to be cleaned up, and that's what happened, and Canadians will be happy with that. So are they looking beyond that? Are they looking uh, too much at the end and not at the beginning? And by that, I mean, as long as it's over, it's done with, as opposed to, how did we get here after three weeks? <laughs> uh, I think they're going to be looking at all aspects of it. Hindsight is twenty twenty. It's hard, to, as we saw in, in the inquiry, it's hard to make decisions in the eye of the battle. So I, I think what the inquiry is going to look at is look at every factor that went into it and, and hopefully give us a clear decision, though it is a government report. So a clear decision is not something that usually comes from it. But uh, hopefully it gives us some indicator of what happened, why it happened, and hopefully we get some clarity from our So. So what do you think is happening, Daniel, this week? What What is mm -hmm. being reviewed? What are questions that are being asked now? I think... Uh, the testimony is probably the biggest part. Everyone's testimony and kind of going through it and, and trying to get again a better understanding of everyone's perspective and how they got to their decision process. Because as we heard, how some police chiefs got to their decision process was very different than how cabinet got to it. So my instinct to say is that they're taking a very close look at what was said and kind of matching up to the facts of what actually happened. Do you think we'll see changes around jurisdiction? Obviously, the Ottawa Police Service has taken the brunt of this, uh, whether it's not reacting to intelligence or, or thinking that it would only last a weekend, and then when it, it lasted longer than that, not having a, a plan B. It seemed jurisdiction as well as who's controlling what. Do you think that's going to change? Because uh, obviously within that precinct, you get, there's the RCMP, there's the OPP, there's the Ottawa Police Service. Is somebody eventually going to say, okay, here's the plan, I'm leaving and here's what the rest of you all do. There's definitely a lot of fingers in the pie in, in this situation. And to be honest with you, I, I don't I don't see it changing at all because no one's going to want to give an inch. Even after the, the tragic incident that happened on the Hill uh, where the RCMP took over from uh, Parliamentary Protective Services, there, that was a very tough decision and, and it still has a lot of hard feelings left from it. So I think that was a case that needed to happen. But I think it's something like this it's going to be hard to have anyone step up or step down from the plate. If you're in the city of Ottawa, if you're a resident there, how are you feeling uh, now, whether it's the police service, whether it's the police services board or just the, the functioning uh, or, or the functionality around city hall, how confident are our uh, Ottawa audience around, around their city council and, and their city today? Well, before the convoy, we had a disastrous light rail line, and that was kind of the the joke around the water cooler. And now a lot of people are cracking jokes about our police's ability to do that. With that said, we do have a new mayor in town. We do have a large number of new councillors. So hopefully they can find some solutions because I'll be honest with you, Scott, 
people in Ottawa don't have a lot of faith faith in the police right now in terms of being able to get the job done and, and getting the job done right. Do you think that uh, this will go through this exercise and that won't be rectified? I can't see going through this and and not having some sort of plan B at the other end. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, we'll talk is cheap. It's actually getting down and getting things done where I think it will be challenging just because there's so many levels of bureaucracy and there's going to be a lot of people who want things done, but they're not eager to actually get things done. So I think that's going to be the challenge is actually motivating organizations and institutes to change because at the end of the day, that's the hardest part. Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies, the fallout of the Emergency Act inquiry and where we go from here. As always, Daniel, thanks for the time. Be well. You do. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We were talking a little earlier on uh, with a spokesperson from CP Rail. The uh, Canadian Pacific holiday train rolls into Gage Park uh, coming up tomorrow. And with that, you know, the big train lit up, 14 cars and a band playing, bands playing and what have you. Uh, but basically, the whole idea is to raise money and, and help the food banks and, and various uh, agencies and such throughout the cities that they touch on, uh, that they go through throughout the course of the holiday season. And, and we are certainly hearing it more and more and more uh, pretty much every day and how much stress there are, there is on our uh, local food banks. Ontario food banks uh, fear rising demand will outpace supply uh, decades after decades after they were deemed a temporary. Remember that when this was only supposed to be a temporary measure? Uh, obviously, in a uh, post-pandemic world, uh, things have not uh, picked up the way they have for some people, and use is way up, including student use. Uh, to talk about uh, all of this, let's bring in Joanne Santucci, CEO Hamilton Food Share. She is with us now. Joanne, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, we are, Scott. Thank you very much for having me. So, Joanne, it seems that uh, we talk about this and we've talked about it for years, but in a post-pandemic world, uh, you've seen demand go way up through the roof. How how bad is it uh, in a post-pandemic situation with, with food share and, and other food banks and such? Well, I, I think it's double full. Like, first, let's just talk about Hamilton itself, you know. This Christmas, 11,000 households representing over 30,000 people are going to reach out or they're not going to be able to participate in that holiday. That's the largest number, really, we've ever had since we started Food Share 32 years ago. So that's pretty significant. But um, there are increases, and, and there's, there's two kinds of things that are going on. More people are coming, which we can handle at this moment, but the people who are coming are falling deeper into poverty. They're needing more than one visit to come to make ends meet. So I think people are starting to lose their, 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 their fight with poverty um, because they have nothing to combat it with. The food banks are holding, but just holding. And I can tell you, though, this is Hamilton. You know what I mean? Mm. We're a tough stuff, and we're a generous city. I love this city so much, and it always comes through. So I'm not concentrating on what ain't going to come. I'm going to concentrate on how we can pull together and all row together as a city to make this Christmas the biggest one so far that we've helped uh, people celebrate uh, You know, this year. This year's got to be it. So Obviously, we've done so many things ourselves. We've amended budgets. We've talked to donors. We've done everything in our power to actually underwrite what's going on at Christmas time to help 23 different organizations. So we are primed and ready. 
And, you know, I, I guess, uh, as you mentioned, we all know Hamiltonians will give you the shirt off their back uh, if they don't need it. And and in here you're seeing demand rise, but you're also seeing donations keep up with that. That must be reassuring. It is reassuring. And, you know, everybody's affected by inflation. Everybody, every household, every corporation, we can all do something. And I, I understand, too, that maybe you can't do it to the degree that you used to do it. Then then get in with a friend and pool your resources. Don't buy multiple presents for one person. Just stop buying one present and donate that. You can ask your family, just everybody to chip in and donate that. There's a way we can get to this. And I have all the faith in the world in Hamilton. I always have. It's not a city that needs any suggestions on how to help their neighbor. You know what I mean? They actually wrote the book on it. So for 32 years, they have not disappointed. And I am not considering this year going to be one of them. Talk about the avenues you use in order to get this food where it needs to be. Uh, Many of the old days, it was, you know, you grab a bag of non-perishables, you bring it in. But you guys have really learned how to uh, strategize and and pool your resources where when you get cash, you you get lots of bang for the buck. Oh, yes. You know, uh, as the numbers started to grow, we had to also add different kinds of elements to that support. So what we do is we buy... um, deeply discounted uh, bulk buying, we're able to buy huge amounts and get it for less than 50% of what anybody else can get it for. We also have fantastic donors in the food industry who also give us skid loads and skid loads, truckloads of food. We combine that together and our city does food drives for us. All of those three things make up about 4 million pounds throughout the year, which is really valued around $13 million worth of support into that system throughout the year. What about volunteers, Joanne? I mean, we've heard, uh, obviously, like any industry, charities, have food banks have taken a hit, not only with uh, demand being up, supply perhaps being down, but even getting people to help out. What, what's the volunteer situation been like for you at Hamilton Food Share? The holiday train is tomorrow, and we had to we had to almost turn some away. We've had at least 50 volunteers, 60 volunteers are coming out. They are not deterred. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So there's so many ways you can help. You can volunteer. You can give a dollar, and that dollar can stretch five times the amount that anybody else can do. I think, more importantly, we need to have a discussion, really, and talk about what's going on in our community because, you know, these are people that are really in, in dire straits. They will not celebrate the holiday if it isn't for, you know, the the generosity of our community. So I think even if you can only give a little, then just give a little. We're grateful for that. Joanne Santucci with us, CEO Hamilton Food Share, talking about uh, getting ready for the Christmas season. And, of course, a reminder, the CP Holiday Train rolling into Gage Park tomorrow, uh, supporting Hamilton Food Share and all the great agencies in the Hamilton area. Joanne, thanks so much for the time. Good luck this year. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've certainly known what's happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that has uh, changed the post-pandemic recovery of where the world is, uh, setting another... event, I guess, uh, on the world stage that uh, everybody has to deal with, whether it's military, whether it's uh, supplying aid or or what have you uh, to help Ukraine. 
Uh, Canada's military forces are ready to meet their commitments should Russia's war in Ukraine spread to NATO countries, but it would be a challenge to launch a larger scale operation in the long term, said Chief of Defense Staff General Wayne Eyre, uh, recently saying that uh, his larger concerns about strategic readiness, he said the lack of people and equipment uh, and further uh, and further concern around the ability to sustain a larger scale mission in the longer term are a concern. Uh, They've been struggling to retain staff, the Canadian Armed Forces, nearly 10,000 fewer trained personnel uh, than when they're at full strength. Uh, and, you know, all the basic challenges that we're seeing uh, as well. I are saying Canada's military would be hard-pressed to launch another large-scale operation like it had in Afghanistan, for example, without having to redistribute its resources from around the world. What does that mean as we move forward? What does it mean with the Russian invasion of Ukraine as it drags on and continues into the winter? Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor International National Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Oral, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, anything new here, Oral? Um, obviously, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces are needing personnel like pretty much every industry is in Canada. Uh, are we ready if needed on the world stage and considering what's happening with Ukraine and Russia? I think our Chief of Staff was extremely diplomatic and saying that we can meet certain commitments, but we have a strategic problem. I think the reality is that we're barely hanging in. Our armed forces have been run down. Uh, We are short of personnel. We are short of equipment. Our cupboards are largely bare. We tried to help Ukraine, but there's only so much we can take out from our supplies. We are trying to buy equipment from elsewhere to supply the Ukrainians. We need to rebuild deterrence. We are a large, powerful, influential country in the world with a minuscule armed force where our defense expenditures are way below even the limited 2% guideline that was agreed upon back in 2014. So I think uh, we have to carefully re-examine what grand strategy is, how do we rebuild deterrence, how do we meet our commitment to our allies, and how do we protect ourselves in the North. Many were questioning what, in fact, we were sending to Ukraine. Some said that it was outdated or or old military uh, uh, equipment that we weren't in use of anymore. Is this an opportunity for us to scale up here? It is both an opportunity and, I would argue, a necessity. We have to realize that we live in a geopolitical environment where there are very major threats. I wish it weren't so. One would think that by the 21st century, humanity would have learned from the tragedy or the futility of armed conflict, but we haven't. And so it is not the world the way we wish it to be. We have to deal with the world the way it is. And the way it is, uh, sadly, uh, we witness that in Ukraine. We see the threats that China is posing to Taiwan and the South China Sea. We can see environmental threats from energy exploration in the Arctic by Russia. And we have to deal with all of those threats, whether they are political, economic, and military. But there is that military component. And we cannot, sadly, get around that. We have to spend the money. We are now buying, or we are on the verge of buying F-35s, which are advanced stealth aircraft. I think that was the right decision. I argued for it before parliamentary committees that we should not buy 
some new version of the F-18. We need fifth-generation fighters. That's a step in the right direction. We need more naval capacity. We need power projection capacity. Uh, this isn't the first time we've had this discussion, or we've been having it. It seems for decades. Um, you're talking about buying, purchasing of planes, helicopters, whatever. It seems we've been debating this uh, forever, uh, to the point where even we're looking at used stuff from other countries. Um, is it time for us? It seemed for a while there we were just going to be peacekeepers. This is all we needed to do after the Cold War was over. But clearly, uh, that has changed again. Will we see Canada get back to where? it was, say, around the the time of the Second World War and such? I I do not know if we can go back quite to that level because uh, that involves a kind of cost factor that would be very difficult to implement. But I think those who advocated uh, for Canada to become just a peacekeeper, I think they really need to uh, re-examine that advice because it turns out that it was pretty poorly thought out advice that we need to have hard power that is usable, that is viable, that is commensurate with our international standing and our international commitments. We are not uh, protected by oceans the way we imagined it to be. We live in a globalized system with geopolitical competition. We are a northern state, so we have the Arctic as well as the Pacific and uh, and the uh, Atlantic uh, oceans. So we're looking uh, uh, in many directions, and uh, we cannot do it with a minuscule armed force. As much as our troops uh, are very well trained, they are highly respected, but there are not enough of them. They need to have equipment. You can't have an air force where the planes are older than the pilots. Hmm. Are we ready to have this discussion now, Oral? We better have that discussion. If we're not ready now, uh, we will have to have it later on when we might be at a very significant disadvantage. This is why it's so essential, and we talked about it uh, on your show, that we have to recognize that Western deterrence has failed. If it had been successful, Russia would not have invaded. We had warned Russia not to invade. They uh, did not uh, listen to uh, United States and collective NATO. We need to rebuild that deterrent. The ideal uh, situation is where we do not have to fight a war, where we can avoid a conflict by demonstrating to the other side the futility of engaging in attack against us, uh, which is highly unlikely, but uh, against our allies, which is much more likely. We are allied with the Baltic states. The Baltic states are very concerned that, especially if Vladimir Putin somehow turns the situation around Ukraine, and he emerges uh, successfully by some kind of imposed negotiation, he might go up to the Baltic States next, and we are defending the Baltic States. Arl Brown with us. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, Canada's commitment to NATO, and what we'd need to do to reinforce our military. Arl, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Black Friday. 
and now Cyber Monday. Uh, Black Friday crowds, many were saying over the weekend, a little bit smaller. It's like you know, you don't see the days where you know people were lining up before stores even opened. And then remember, there's always the shots of a store in the U.S. where you know people are pressed up against the glass and they need security to get everybody in. Don't really see or hear much of that uh, anymore. Uh, has Cyber Monday replaced Black Friday? Which one is bigger now when it comes to how much money we spend? Let's bring in Bruce Winter, uh, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19. He is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time again. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Do we know which one turns out more? Cyber Monday, Black Friday. Does one generate more revenue than the other still? Yeah, if I use U.S. as a barometer, because our data is a little bit behind, it looks like Cyber Monday is on plan to beat Black Friday because Adobe in the U.S. Uh, measures uh, 85% of the 100 webs in the U.S. for both holidays. And they were saying Black Friday hit about $9 billion U.S., and they're predicting Cyber Monday will be like $11.5 billion. So it's actually uh, we're here- bigger. We're hearing that uh, crowds were smaller this Black Friday. Uh, obviously, inflation and the economy being what it is. But that being said, we've also just come out of a, a global pandemic, and and we've really changed the way we do we do things. Is has has Black Friday sort of run its course? Is it an era gone by at this point, Bruce? Yeah, I think it, it's 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 still here and it's still going to be here. It's a great brand that people use, but it's morphed from being, you know, one morning where people line up, like you mentioned, to really a week-long event, a week-long plus. I mean, there's still some sales of Black Friday that are continuing on this week. So it's less about a day or morning and more about a week and a half to two weeks of sales. Is it the pandemic which has just changed our buying habits? Or are we still just, you know, a little antsy about going in? Uh, is is it just that our behaviors change in a post-pandemic world? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that e-commerce has grown so big, and we all got used to it during the pandemic. People who never used e-commerce started using it. It's settled down a, a bit since then. But you know what? People are used to just ordering online, and the retailers know that. They start their Black Friday sales the night before, so the Thursday night. And you know what? People are just really comfortable buying everything online now. So I think that's eroded some of it. But certainly your point, too, is well taken about the uh, the economy right now. You know, times are tough, and people are saying, you know what? I might not need that TV. Maybe this is a year to kind of fix what I have or use an old refurbished TV for my parents. And people are looking to stretch that dollar. Are there certain types of products that are more conducive to a Cyber Monday? Is there certain stuff, uh, segments that do well, better on, say, a Cyber Monday than a Black Friday or vice versa? No, they're pretty similar. You know what? Both focus heavy on consumer electronics like TVs and laptops and all the Apple products and, you know, the Sony products, they're all loaded up there. You also have housewares and small appliances. You've got apparel. I think you might see a little bit more apparel on Black Friday, sort of apparel. But uh, you know what? It, both, both holidays carry a, a vast array of uh, assortment. Are the malls returning to normal? Are we still see, are we still seeing a lot of foot traffic in malls? Because uh, obviously for a long time we couldn't go in or it was re- restricted. Has that come back this year? Yeah, it's come back. It's probably not where it was in 2019 because people can can buy online now. But you know, it's come back a lot since last year when things were a little spotty with Omicron and things like that. So yeah, I've heard reports of malls being fairly steady. Again, not 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 at you know six in the morning like you said, but steady throughout the day, which is good. You know, get some traffic back in the malls. 
What do you? Uh, many have said, you know, this is what it was like then. Uh, here's what it's like now. But uh, there's nothing written in stone that said that says this is going to be the way it is in the future. Do you think this is still evolving? Do you think we still haven't seen the fallout of of what the new retail is going to be like? What it's going to look like? Yeah, no, your point is well taken. I mean, consumers are sort of making it up as they're going along here, right? And, you know, I don't know what the new normal is going to be. You know, um, it, it's I took a run at it in my book, but realistically, we don't know what it's going to be. I mean, we're in for a couple of tough years right now. You know, when this is all over, even in two years, when, you know, two or three years, when this really tough economy passes, that that new normal again. People, are, How, people lost their jobs. It's going to change again. Have we sort of hit rock bottom in this, Bruce? And by that, I mean, you know, there's so much online shopping. There's, it's so competitive. Uh, margins are so slim that we're as about as low as we're going to go as far as deals. You really are. We're almost at that point now, you know, because, you know, you look at fast, super fast fashion. And, you know, if you buy from a company called Sheen, I don't work for youngsters do. And, you know, you can get tops for like 10 bucks now, right? And yeah. kind of at the, at the trough now in terms of that whole, you know, disposable, disposable products. And I think we've got to re- reevaluate that as a society. Are we still going to be building shopping malls? Yeah, we are for sure. Um, but malls are different. You know what? You're going to have super incredible Disneyland-like malls for folks who are affluent. And you're going to have functional malls for everyone else where you pick up stuff, get food, and uh, it's going to be more transactional. So malls will continue to polarize between the haves and the have-nots. And what will they change? How will they change? Because we're hearing more and more that malls in those big giant spaces, giant parking lots, are now adding a residential compound or component to uh, a shopping mall. Is that the future? That's actually the that's the future, and that's the current state too. Actually, that's happening right now in front of us. You're seeing uh, mixed use malls pop up everywhere, where companies are taking their parking lots and say, "Hey, let's drop a few condos in here." And uh, that that's uh, currently what's happening now, and that's the future. You know, these little sort of uh, mini cities within a city, and that's what you uh- can see as well. Malls, obviously, big structures, uh, a lot of the time facing inward. The experience is inside. Is that changing? Do you, can you see that uh, where there's more storefront activity on both the inside and outside uh, as we try to make these, uh, uh, these complexes more attractive? Yeah, it's a good question. You're probably going to see some of that because malls can be pretty ugly, right, to your point, if you just see a bunch of walls, mm. right? So I think you're going to see that. I think, And, and also the, the landlord wants to optimize and maximize you know, their sales per square foot. So you're probably going to see some outward-facing shops as well. And that bodes well for pandemics. You know, People were nervous about going in a mall during a pandemic. Hey, we might have another pandemic again, unfortunately, right? So I think you're going to see sort of both inward and outward going forward. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19, talking about Black Friday and Cyber Monday today. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye-bye now. All right. Scott Radley is joining us. You can hear him on the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him this morning on Good Morning Hamilton. And you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? Are you there, Scott? I am here. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still awake. 
I, I really appreciate this. We got our wires crossed. I appreciate you uh, jumping in here. Your thought on the fallout of Team Canada and the World Cup uh, and, and our first appearance there in, in many, many years. What are we to take from all of this? Well, um, we I think we are to take the fact that we are a lot closer to being competitive with the world's really good teams than we were even five years ago. Um, and I think we're also to take from it that we are still a long way from being one of the great powers of soccer. Um, you know, the fact that Canada is in the World Cup was terrific. It is terrific. They've got one more game left. And the fact that they were so competitive with Belgium in the first game, which is the second-ranked team in the world, though I'm not really sure they're really the second-best team in the world. Um, again, though, that was terrific. But, you know, Croatia... 25 or 30 minutes into the game, and for the last 60 minutes, um, an off lesson and how much work is still to be done. All right, let's talk about the uh, Hamilton Honey Badgers uh, announcing that they are moving to Brampton because of uh, First Ontario Centre and the renovations going on there. We've heard this with the Bulldogs as well, uh, that it's going to be like two years while these renos are going on that they have to find other digs. Uh, announcing that the Honey Badgers are uh, not just moving temporarily, but this is going to be a permanent thing. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, from a business perspective, it makes sense. If you are going to they could have played this coming year because the season is May to August and the construction isn't supposed to start till sometime in the fall. But their point is look, we're gonna be out for two years. It makes no business sense to pour money into marketing and trying to find sponsors and selling tickets and everything for a team that's gonna be out of here and out of sight, out of mind for two years, maybe more. I mean what construction project here or anywhere finishes on time? So they're saying, you know, it really it doesn't make sense to try and pretend that there's a team out there that's going to come back that we're going to prop up or try and make people interested in when it's just going to go away. So they've said, you know what, down the road, maybe somehow if there is some opportunity, there may be an expansion team that comes back here. But it just it didn't make sense to to maintain. Now, the, the tricky part about even the expansion team idea, Scott, is so let's say so they're not going to play here this year. Then there's two years of construction. Then they think, hey, you know, it'd be a great time to come back to Hamilton and put a team in that building, which could potentially, theoretically, be right around the same time that all of downtown Hamilton is chewed up because of the LRT project, Hmm. so that the whole area is a construction zone. And do you want to start a new team when it's really hard for people who aren't right in the downtown to get there? So who knows when and if a team comes back here? I mean, we don't even know what you know what this league will look like in three or four years it could be blossoming it could who knows so we may be just in the middle of a a blip between teams or this may be the end of the team the basketball program in hamilton are you surprised that uh these teams are going to be out for a couple of years considering it's a reno not a complete rebuild well it's so i'm not a construction guy i don't i don't pretend to know how long something like this would take. I mean, when they're talking about a project that's minimum $100 million, and we've even heard up to $200 million, um, I'm assuming that's, if not a brand new building, it's as close as you're going to get with a complete gut job. And So, yeah, that, that I expect would, would take time. So am I surprised by two years? I'm not necessarily surprised by two years. The, the issue here has always been um, the Bulldogs, the Rock, and the Honey Badgers all said, 
they believed that this could be done like how Madison Square Garden was renovated, where it was done in pieces, and you could work and play as the stuff was going on around you. They would do different areas at different times. So the two years, I don't know if I'm surprised by that. Am I surprised that they can't make it work to figure it out some other way? Maybe a little more so, only because, as I say, all three of these teams say that's what they've been led to believe. It's going to be fascinating to see how all of these teams react and what happens in the next one or two or three years, especially as this uh, new place comes up online and whether well, the renos are enough to bring everybody back. Well, and, and what if, and look, I, the Honey Badgers are clearly already making this move, but what if the Rock or the Bulldogs go somewhere else and find a welcome, warm place that welcomes them and buys tickets and shows up in droves? I mean, I'm not predicting that. But is it a guarantee that both those teams come back after three years? I wouldn't say it's a guarantee. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read me in your Hamilton Spectator. Changes in the sports front in Hamilton as the Honey Badgers take off to Brampton. Well, uh, First Ontario Centre gets Renault. Scott, as always, thanks so much for the time, especially today. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. I don't know about today, but I'm glad Cyber Monday wasn't a thing back when I was a kid. Can you imagine everybody's house down the street? You just hear that old dial-up internet sound constantly on loop. Never again. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.